0: Father, we do indeed thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day, and we thank you, Lord, for all these beautiful people that have come out this morning to sit at your feet. Lord, we just ask that as your word is read and uh, as it is proclaimed by Mike, that uh, it would all be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, thou art the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One other thing I want to share with you off script here, if that's all right, about where you guys were last weekend. Can I share that briefly? Some of you uh, may not know Don and Shirley Brammer. They were in Yosemite last weekend. Uh, I wish I was in Yosemite last weekend. I love going there. While they were there, a giant tree fell on their tent cabin while they were at breakfast. And had they not been at breakfast, they would not be here today. There was someone killed with that tree falling. And so the providence of God is a, is a mysterious thing. But we're thankful that, that you're here today. And since I brought up this person, maybe we should just take a moment and pray for that person's family Um, so there's a sweet providence and a bitter providence with this, with this tree falling. Let's just take a moment and pray before we get into the message today. Father, we're thankful that the Brammers are here, Lord, and that each one of us is here. That you have more for us in this life. We're reminded with the tree falling, Lord, that any one of us could be, be gone in a, in a moment, that life is a vapor. So help us to make the most of our lives, to live for your glory. Lord, we're thoughtful of this uh, one who is no longer with us, and we pray for this one that was killed by the tree for his or her family. We pray that they would come to know Jesus, and that eternal and imperishable things would raise to the surface in their hearts and minds and also in ours. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college in Santa Barbara, My sophomore year, I went to a church that was very lively. You know, it's a lively church when they are passing out instruments as you come in the the doors, right? The priesthood of all believers. You know, some of us, we keep those things up here and don't uh, distribute them freely. It was a, a great experience to be a part of this church for a year. And I have some very, very sweet memories and also some, some difficult memories uh, of my time with that church. I hadn't been there very many uh, weeks or months. This was my sophomore year in college in Santa Barbara, and I remembered they were having a healing service on a weeknight. Something that was new to me, had never been a part of anything like that. I was excited and kind of nervous and not sure what this was going to be like. And so it was like a Wednesday night. We weren't having it in the sanctuary. Sanctuary was probably about this size. It's going to be in a bigger place, and everybody's invited, and, you know, bring people, and we're, we're trusting God for, for healing. There was a woman in the church, saw her there every Sunday for the months that I had been there, who was in a wheelchair. She uh, did not have the use of her legs. And so I, I'm anticipating this night, like, what, what's going to happen at this healing service It was like a Wednesday night at seven o'clock down by the harbor at this larger building and we got there and sure enough there's lots of lively music and and uh, instruments were passed out and all of that but then we got to the the healing part of the service and there was a certain point in this worship service that I think was probably on almost everyone's minds that was out in there out in the crowd I was out there and and is she going to come up there and is she going to be healed And so some men uh, just grabbed her wheelchair and grabbed her and and just brought her up and, and set her down up there in her wheelchair and people gathered around. And they laid hands on her and prayed for her. And these were bold prayers. These were fervent prayers. They were passionate prayers by godly people, people that I had gotten to know in a certain degree. And I was hoping, desiring, praying that I would see her get up and and, and walk. Uh, Maybe some of you have been in a setting like this or a situation like this. Maybe you've seen someone uh, get up and walk. But in this particular scenario, after the prayer was over, the moment comes, what's going to happen here, and a few of the men kind of helped her out of her wheelchair and were just just holding her up um, in love. And she's smiling and, and there was just a, a spirit of warmth, and yet there was kind of a, a hidden spirit, at least within myself, of, of disappointment at what had gone on there. She wasn't, she, it, this, this wasn't a, a take up your wheelchair and walk moment. And so she got back down in her wheelchair, and, and the service went on. So I'm processing what happened there that night. And I talked to somebody that I look up to spiritually some days later. And I, and I asked him, I said, this is what happened. I'm just trying to process this. And I remember his response to me was something like this. He said, you know, when the Lord does a miracle in the Gospels, when, when he does miracles, he does them uh, unequivocally. And, and they're not uh, completed in, in stages. And the way that they had presented afterward, the church leaders did, was that there had been somewhat of a miracle that happened on that stage that night. That there was kind of a, a partial miracle, but God hadn't restored her to be able to walk. That's the way this was presented. And so this man that I'm talking to some days later says, you know, when we look in the scriptures, the, the, there aren't stages or sequences. God, God just, when he does miracles, they're, they're unequivocal. When we, when we see the paralytic, he gets up his mat and he walks and everybody sees him walking and there isn't any dispute, disputation about whether this was genuine. The person who was deaf can now hear that we saw just a couple weeks ago, he could hardly speak. Now he could speak. there's no disputation, there's no stages. With the exception of one passage, passage we're going to look at today, there is, there is a, a, a stage, a sequence, in the passage that was just read, where Jesus is seeking to give sight to someone and heal him, and that healing is not immediate. Why is that? This is the only place in Mark's, not only in Mark's gospel, but in all the gospels where Jesus seems to do a healing and it isn't immediate and and final and unequivocal. There is a time in this healing process where this man cannot see clearly. And and, and so Jesus seems to do like a take one and, and then a take two. So today, as we get into God's Word, I want to basically answer what is behind this two-stage healing that we see in Mark chapter 8. And I, I'm, I believe this is going to give us a lot of hope about our lives, this, this passage today. Are you tracking with me so far? Any of you tracking with me so far? Okay. So, I'm, I, you know, I, I still kind of fantasize about being in that lively church, you know, where everybody's like... Like, with you and, and and talking. Maybe next week we'll have instruments out. So, um, chapter 8 is where we are. We're going to look at this two-stage miracle and find what the Lord has to say through his word to us. We're beginning at chapter 8 and verse 22. It says this, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand And led him outside the village. So let's just stop here for a moment. So obviously, this isn't a miracle that's intended to be big and on display. Jesus isn't looking for maximum visibility here. This isn't a billboard kind of miracle. He takes the man by the hand and leads him outside the village. Now, back in verse 22, it says, They came to Beseda. So if you weren't here last week, haven't been with us uh, through this journey, Last week, last couple weeks, what happened last week is the disciples went across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, in a boat with Jesus. And he gives them instruction about watching out for the Pharisees. They didn't receive his instruction well. They don't understand what, is, what he's trying to drive home, that he is the bread of life. They're concerned about the one loaf of bread. At the very end of last week's passage, look at it at verse 21. Jesus says to them, do you still not understand? So this is the context that we come into today, the healing of this blind man. Those of you that weren't here last week is this confusion of the disciples. Jesus is trying to show them that he is the bread of life. He's trying to show them the danger of the Pharisees, and they're concerned about this one loaf. Then they come to Bethsaida in verse 22. This is a picture not of Lake Tahoe, but of the Sea of Galilee on the screen from above. And Bethsaida is right at the very top of that. Let's see here. Went too far. Beseda is right at the very top of that. If we zoom in, here's an overview of the lake, the very north part of that lake. This is where they have arrived in Beseda, where this takes place. So this blind man is brought to Jesus by the people. Back to our text, look at verse 23. Now this gets gross here. This gets kind of icky, right? This is the second, like where we were a few weeks ago, uh, when he had spit on the man's eyes. Did you catch that? That's not a verse we generally put on the cover of our bulletins, um, (laughs) do we? This isn't something that's emphasized. But Jesus spit, literally, on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Now, again, those of you that weren't here a few weeks ago, we learned that scholars call spit or saliva spittle. And spittle was regarded as an important curative force in Judaism and Hellenism. So this seems like a really strange way to do a healing But this is what would have been anticipated, what would have been expected back in that day, to to spit on someone's eyes or to use saliva in some ways of healing. So this is what Jesus does. But this isn't really the crazy part. This is kind of gross, and we're culturally distant from that. But the part that's crazy here is that Jesus asks this question in verse 23. Do you see anything? He seems to anticipate that he is not going to see clearly. Verse 24, this man looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So this healing is not immediate. This healing is not what we are expecting from Jesus. Even the reader, the casual reader, who's reading Mark's gospel, who's going through here, sees this healing after healing of, after healing that are just unequivocal. And are immediate. But now we have one that isn't. And this should be jumping off the page in our minds and hearts. We should be asking the question, what is going on here? The man says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. This isn't for certain. But I think it's likely that this man wasn't born blind. That this man has gone blind. And so he's able to recognize what he can't recognize. He's able to describe what he's seeing. He has this partial healing if you will. Why do we have this partial healing? This is what we should be asking as we're reading this passage. So moving on, th- this is just temporary. Verse 25, this this lack of complete healing. Verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything Clearly, Jesus sent him home, saying, "Don't go into the village." Now, the reason I think Jesus here says uh, sends him home and not going into the village isn't because necessarily Jesus is wanting this to be kept a secret. I think he's he's telling him not to go back to the village because this is the place where people would beg. This is where the blind people would beg. And Jesus has healed this man and restored him so he can now be a contributor to society, to culture, that he can be productive, that he can be someone who's part of advancing the kingdom of God. So I think this is what he's saying when he's saying don't go back into the village. Don't go back to what your life has been. I have given your sight. But why has he done it in this sequential way? Why would Jesus do something and it not be... Like all of the other miracles that have happened, instantaneous and perfect and, and unequivocal, eventually gets there, but why, why? So to answer this, we've got to continue on in the passage. Let me say one reason I think that this is not what is going on here. As you read commentaries, as you look at how people across the centuries have tried to figure out what's going on here, what, what is very common is interpreters will say, this is a really, really hard case. This is really hard, this healing. This this is serious. You're laughing at it. These are what like brilliant, you know, PhD people have written across the centuries. This is really difficult. Your laughter tells me I don't really need to say much more, but that that isn't the legitimate that, that is not. I mean, Lazarus is dead for four days in the tomb. His body is decaying. And Jesus says, Come forth. And he raises from the dead from four days of dead. Yeah, so, this, so this, is, this is difficult. I'm not saying this is easy, but to say the reason this is a two-stage miracle is because this is more difficult than others. That, that doesn't wash. Are you with me? Okay. All right, so th- 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 this is a miracle. This is difficult. All miracles are difficult, right, in that sense. But that isn't what is going on here. So back to the text, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So we have a, a shift now. They've been in Bethsaida, just north of the Sea of Galilee, and now they've moved up quite a ways. We're not sure how much time has elapsed, but obviously some time has lapsed. But Mark and the Holy Spirit have put this next section, what happens in Caesarea Philippi, right after this. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So here's something new. Jesus is actually introducing here, uh, talking about his identity for the first time. Who do people say I am? There's been lots of speculation and lots of input about who Jesus is from the people and the characters in Mark's gospel, but not from Jesus himself who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. So what we have now is we have the disciples giving perspectives as to who Jesus is, who people say that Jesus is. And I want to give expand on these perspectives and look throughout the entire gospel of Mark as we, as we go through the rest of the sermon, giving what the various perspectives are about who Jesus is. And in doing this, we'll, we'll come to why we have this two-stage miracle. So we have the crowd is really the first of the characters. If we want to think of this as, as literature, which Scripture is literature, one of the main characters in Mark's gospel is the crowd. And the crowd or the people have a very positive view of Jesus. Perhaps, he's, perhaps he is John the Baptist, resurrected in some way. Perhaps he is Elijah, or perhaps they're confused that John the Baptist isn't really dead, he's John the Baptist. Or he's Elijah, resurrected. He's some sort of prophet. There is a very positive view of who Jesus is from the crowd, that he is a healer. And we've seen this week after week after week, that the crowds are just all around Jesus. He can't even move. He can't even eat at times. He has to escape in boats because the crowd, the people, are recognizing him as not only good, but as this miracle-working prophet is probably the way that they describe him. He is a healer, and he is gracious to them. So another of the characters in Mark's gospel and their perspective of Jesus are the demons. Now, it's interesting... That of all the characters in Mark's gospel so far, the only ones who actually know who Jesus is until we get to this passage today are the demons. They actually know who he is. If we look back all the way to chapter three, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. The demons know who he is. The disciples don't know who he is. They have just come across the lake in the boats. If we look back up to verse 21, and Jesus says to them, do you still not understand? They don't understand who he is. They have a similar view to the crowd and to the people. They are confused about Jesus' identity. The demons are not confused about Jesus' identity. So the disciples have a similar view to the crowd. They're focused on the bread, not on the bread of life. And they are lacking up until today's passage, the verses we're about to look at, they're lacking an understanding of who Jesus is. All of this plays into, I think, why we have a two-stage miracle. The other character that we have, uh, one of the other characters we have as far as Jesus' identity are the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, understand Jesus. If we look back at chapter 3 and verse 22, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of these Bible guys who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So their perspective on who Jesus is is that he is a man under demonic influence. They cannot deny these miraculous things that he is doing. So, they wanting to hold on to their power and their theology and their traditions, the conclusion that they come to, the only conclusion they can come to, is that he is doing these things by the power of demons. He is, uh, he is uh, powered by a demon. This is what is going on. Now, finally, we come to... Uh, Well, before we get to that, let me read to you John 10. This just gives us another picture of their identity and of Jesus' identity. The hired hand here, the words that I put in green, these words symbolize the Pharisees or the scribes, the religious leaders. But let me just read John 10 to you briefly before we move on. Jesus describes his identity in John 10 as the good shepherd. I am. Those many I am statements in John's gospel. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm bringing this passage up here. Hopefully, this is all going to come together in just a moment. We're almost there for this aspect of Jesus laying his life down for the sheep. Even in John 10, he's drawing this contrast between his true identity as the shepherd and the false identity of the religious leaders of that day who were really all about themselves. This is what, what Jesus has just warned the disciples about in last week's passage as they went across the lake. He's warned them that they don't end up this way hanging on to this theology and this power, this false theology and this power that's illegitimate. He is the good shepherd. So finally, we get to the, the, the center, if you will, of the today's sermon and also the very center of the gospel of Mark when it comes to literally the amount of text. We're about to the very center of the book. So back to our text, verse 27. Who do people say I am? The crowd as communicated by the disciples, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? What about you? So we should read this on two levels now. The reader should read this on the level, what about you, reader? What about you, Mike? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, you can't see it in your English Bibles, but the you here are pl- in plural. Plural. So, so Jesus is, uh, in, in a Texas translation, uh, but, what a, but what about y'all? How do y'all say, who do y'all say I am, is the way this would read in, in a Texas translation. But look who speaks up, the leader, the leader of the apostles, Peter. He is always ready to go, he's, he's, ready, to, he's ready to speak, he's ready to act, he's ready to do things. So he, Jesus is talking to the disciples, but then Peter answers, you are Christ. You are the Messiah. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that someone other than a demon actually recognizes who Jesus actually is. People have had awe for him. People have fell down in front of him like the Syrophoenician woman. But here we get a glimpse that Peter understands who Jesus is is Jesus is Christ could also be translated messiah you are the messiah Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him now, this is an unusual thing he says right after this we have this crescendo uh, i actually cut and pasted the text of the new testament of mark's gospel not the new testament but of just mark's gospel because several commentators said that verse that sentence you are the christ is at the very center of Mark's uh, gospel. And so I actually did the work and looked at that. And yes, it is right at the center. But then Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. Why is that? The reason he warns them not to tell anyone about him is that there is a great amount of progress about identifying who Jesus is that Peter has made by saying you are the Messiah, but Peter is a long way from understanding what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. Now I'm finally getting to why this two-stage miracle. Some of you are like, is he ever going to come back to that? Why is this a two-stage miracle? Peter has limited sight in understanding what kind of Messiah Jesus is. The kind of Messiah that Peter and everyone in the first century was expecting. They were expecting the kind of Messiah who would make Israel great again. You heard that line anywhere? They are expecting a Messiah who's going to build up the military. They are expecting a Messiah who is going to put the enemies down, rule and reign from Jerusalem, and set up the kingdom. They are expecting a Messiah of power. But they have a Messiah who is going to lay his life down for the sheep. Now we just have to peek into next week's passage a little bit here to to get the full gist of this. So Jesus, for the first time, his identity is revealed through the disciple Peter that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. Look at verse 31. He then began to teach them, That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, in one moment, is is the, the pinnacle so far of Mark's gospel. You are the Messiah, you are Christ. In the next moment, he is rebuking Jesus. It's not good to rebuke Jesus. But if we were one of Peter's contemporary, we would probably be rebuking Jesus too. Maybe not out loud, but in our hearts and in our minds. Because they were not expecting a Messiah who was going to suffer and die. Especially on a cross. Be on death row. Be a felon. We don't have heroes like that. We don't have saviors like that. Mark is wanting us to see, wanting the reader to overcome the scandal of the cross. So the reason that we have a two-stage miracle above here is because because Peter has very limited vision of who Christ is. And he is going to need to be touched by the grace of God in order to see Jesus as the biblical Messiah, as the suffering Messiah. And the message to the reader of Mark's gospel is that we also are far from understanding who the Messiah really is. Jesus is so massive and infinite. Philosophers refer to God as maximally great being. And you and I, in our journey, although we're different than Peter and our struggles are different, we are going to need to be touched by God, to have vision, to see who the real Jesus is. And so this two-stage miracle is an intention, under God's sovereign workings, for us to see and and respond by saying, God, I'm praying that you will touch me and that I will, the, the areas of my life where I'm deficient in understanding who Jesus is, that you will touch me and I will have clarity about what kind of Messiah, about what kind of Savior he is. Now, we obviously don't have the same deficiency that Peter had. Peter here is living prior to the death and resurrection, and it's just incomprehensible to him that this is the kind of Savior, the kind of Messiah that we're going to have. So we have other kinds of deficiencies. In my own life, from a very early point in my Christian life, I came to the Lord when I was 16, 17 years old. Personal holiness the Word of God, memorizing Scripture. These are things that are really important to me and flow out of the the Christology or the view of Jesus that I had in my early days as a believer. More recently, the the Lord has been opening my eyes to how compassionate Jesus is and how important it is that I love my neighbor. I knew that that's important. I'd read my Bible in earlier years in my life, but I, I really just underestimated what a mature I misunderstood what a mature believer looks like. I didn't see Jesus' ministry of compassion like today's passage, for example, where he pulls this man aside, outside of of the community where he is, and tells him not to go back to begging because of his compassion. And he's done these kinds of healings over and over and over again. So the two-stage miracle, uh, we have Peter's perspective here, number five. The two-stage miracle, if you didn't connect with me, maybe this will help you understand what I'm trying to say. One commentator writes this, in linking Jesus' two-stage healing of the blind man with Peter's partial confession, he's the Messiah, but he, understands the, what the, he doesn't understand what kind of Messiah he is, Mark sets the agenda for what follows. True sight means embracing Jesus' declaration that the Messiah must die. And I'm saying, true sight, true sight for you and me it means embracing the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of history, and not the Jesus that you and I want to have or are blind to. Same commentator writes this, the man's initial partial healing is given no explanation, but in context, it parallels Peter's initial but also partial confession. Like the man... Blind, Peter, and the other disciples need a second touch since they understand neither who Jesus really is nor the centrality of the cross to his mission and therefore to their discipleship. So in today's passage, we don't see a Jesus who's kind of struggling to do a healing. We see a Jesus who is communicating in a very rich and in a very deep way through the Gospel of Mark to the reader that you and I are going to need multiple touches so that we can see Jesus accurately and clearly. And this happens through the Word of God. It happens through fellowship of others who help us to see our own deficiencies in understanding who Jesus is. The final perspective. We have been looking at this two-stage miracles and this identity of Jesus through, uh, through the crowd, through the demons, through the disciples, through the Pharisees. In today's passage, the very center of the Gospel of Mark textually, through the words of Peter. And then finally, if you can read this at the bottom, we have the authors. The authors being Mark, the human author, and the Holy Spirit. There are always two authors of every piece of Scripture. We have the human author and the author god the holy spirit who's inspired this and so mark has told us who jesus is from the very beginning of the book and here we are at the very middle of the book being reminded through peter who jesus is the title of of the gospel the beginning of the gospel about jesus christ the son of god peter finally recognizes he is the messiah But there is a deficiency in his Christology. And I am suggesting that there's deficiencies in my Christology. And there's deficiencies in your Christology. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus wants to continue to touch us by his grace. To open our eyes to the person, to the work of Jesus. So that we would understand him and love him more and more and more. So this is the very center. You are the Christ. And this is tied to this two-stage miracle. You tracking with me today? We're pretty much done here, unless you're all clueless. Are you feeling hopeful and encouraged? God wants us to know that if you're feeling like, yeah, I'm I'm struggling with this whole Jesus thing. I'm not exactly sure what my faith is all about. This passage should be massively hope-giving and encouraging to you. Because Jesus doesn't treat Peter here uh, like he does. Uh, he doesn't treat his disciples the, the way he treats the demons, for sure. The way that he treats, uh, the, the, way that he treats the, the religious leaders who are false teachers and are out to get him. He is patient. He, he speaks the truth. We're going to look at it next week. He's pretty strong with his language, but he is patient with those who are seeking him. And he wants to touch you. He wants to touch me. That we would understand the real historical biblical identity of Jesus. Let's bow our heads and ask Him to help us to do that. Lord, I don't know what the deficiencies are of each one of us here, but I am so thankful and confident that you do. And I'm thankful for the Word of God where we see something that looks like a mistake or Jesus struggling to do a miracle. And it is actually something so beautiful and so encouraging. I want to simply pray for those of us that have deficiencies in our Christology, in our understanding of Messiah, our understanding of the person and work of Jesus. Lord, I pray those things that we're blind to, we can't even really mention, we're blind to them. So I want to pray for protection from the evil one and breakthroughs uh, against the powers and principalities and the powers of darkness that are at work. And I pray that even as a result of today and conversations that may happen afterward, that there would be breakthroughs in understanding who Jesus is. And by your grace, that we would come to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this would be an increasing thing until we are face-to-face with you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.